Well, today we're continuing our series, The End Commandments, and we've been talking this summer about the things that Jesus told us not to do. Jesus had some specific things that he told Christ followers not to do, and so today we're talking about judgment. He told us, do not judge. That's one of the end commandments that he gave us, and so we continue with part five today. It doesn't feel good to be judged, does it? No one likes to be judged, and yet at least in my opinion, I feel, and I can say this as a Christian, I feel that Christians can be some of the most judgmental people on the planet. We can be some of the most judgmental people that there are, and yet we're the exact ones that are not supposed to be the ones to do the judging. And I fully admit, all right, full disclosure, maybe it's because I don't get out of my Christianese bubble often enough. So a lot of the people that I, that I hang out with by default are Christians. So naturally, if the majority of the people you're going to hang out with are Christians, they're the ones that are going to be judging you just by virtue of ratios, right? But I don't think it's limited to that. I think people who aren't Christian, unfortunately, a lot of people who aren't Christian would say that about Christians. What do you think about Christians? Oh, they're judgmental. They judge me because I don't agree with them. So they judge me for it. It's really an unfortunate thing. As I said, you know, a lot of my, my experiences of being judged come from Christians. And it started at an early age. It started at an early age. I remember when I was in high school and I was already involved with music at that point because music has just always been a way that I connect with God and that I experience God. And, and so in high school, a group of us went all the way on this road trip up to Michigan where they were having this thing called a prayer conference. And at this prayer conference, you know, thousands of, of teens gathered together and it was just a time, it was a weekend, it was just a time to pray together, to have, you know, small group studies, to, to come together in a big group and sing together and listen to great sermons and things like that at this prayer conference. And so at this prayer conference, there were some, some sessions where the, the church just kind of emptied out and there was nothing really going on because things were happening elsewhere. And so I looked up once the session was done, and here's this beautiful, beautiful uh, Steinway grand piano that just begged to be played, right? So I walk over, and I just start playing, and back then I had a, a little more of a, you know, rambunctious kind of honky-tonk style, you could say. Um, still do when, I, when, I, when given the chance, but uh, there's not often a, an application for it. So, you know, I got up there and just started playing. They were spiritual songs. They were old hymns and things like that. Just played in a little more of a, you know, exciting style. And pretty soon, you know, a couple teens came up, a couple more. And pretty soon we have a big group gathered around the piano. And we're just singing old camp songs together, old church songs, hymns, and things like that. Just kind of jamming out. Someone brings a guitar up. We're having a great time. And we do it again uh, another time once the church emptied out. We'd go up there again, and we'd just do it again, kind of have an impromptu jam session, an impromptu worship session. And we're worshiping God. We're having fun doing it. Well, one of the saints that was uh, helping to put on this prayer conference, this, this dear older lady, bless her heart. And one thing you should know, I'm from Texas. And in Texas, if you say, bless their heart, you can say anything you want to about anyone. So you can say, you know, he is as dumb as a post, but bless his heart, and then it's okay. So you can say anything you want. So this, this, this saint, bless her heart, came up, and she really, really didn't agree with the way that we were doing our music, with the style of our music. She was judging us. 
she was saying that that type of, that type of rambunctious music has no place in the sanctuary of God. Apparently, her image, her view of God was that of a very stoic, very stoic God. I, I absolutely believe there will be times in heaven when we are on our face silent in reverence because we can't talk, we can't, we can't do anything except just fall on the ground in reverence for our God. But I also believe there will be times like what we experienced here except with an angelic choir backing them up and where we're going to be praising and shouting and dancing. I really do believe that, that we're going to be celebrating in heaven because God is going to be right there and we can't help but be thrilled. So she didn't have that view of, of how music should be done. She thought it should be, you know, a lot more stoic. And I felt judged. I really did. I felt judged by that lady. And I didn't like that. But I thank God it didn't really affect me spiritually. I, I know of some people who were in their teens, and, and some well-meaning person came to set them straight and judged them. And because of that, they left the church, and they never came back. And I, I praise God that, that, that this lady's judging of me didn't have that effect on me. I just kept doing it anyway. <laughs> we kept having jam. We just found another room and did it. So we, we kept our praising going. Early on in my career, I started out my career at the Arlington Seventh-day Adventist Church in Arlington, Texas, which is actually the same city where the cowgirls have their new stadium. Cowboys. Yeah, I'm not a Cowboys fan. I apologize to those who are. I'm a Houston Texans fan, so that's hard to do sometimes, but I, I do it anyway. So anyway, it's the same city where the Cowboys have their stadium. And uh, Arlington, Texas, we had this beautiful, vibrant church, uh, about 2,000 members, and when I came on staff there, I was the pastor for uh, worship ministries, media ministries, and young adult ministries. So I had my hands full. And as part of this, they asked me to start a young adult contemporary worship service as the middle service. They had like, you know, like a, a gathering where maybe you know, 20 young adults would come together and have a Bible study. They're like, we want you to turn this into a full service. And so I took the task and uh, with my team, we, we started going after it and putting together this contemporary worship service. Now, you'll have to understand that the South is just typically more conservative, more traditional, right? And, uh, and that denomination in particular tends to be a little more traditional, a little more conservative. And so we didn't, we didn't always have positive feedback every time. We got a lot of it. But we also had, had some judgment. We had some, uh, you know, we had like a, a dear, dear old saint, bless his heart. He came in and he's like, hey man, what, what is that? Is that a drum set? What do you think this is, California? Because <laughs> apparently California is where all the liberal drum playing Christians hang out with their smoke machines and lights. God bless you. <laughs> we, we brought that in too. You guys paved the way for that. So we would be judged, and I, I remember, but there were also times, there were also people who, it wasn't their style, it wasn't necessarily what they liked, but they saw the value in it, and so they supported us. We'd have some of the older saints, some of the elders, they'd kind of poke their head in the door and hear the loud music and the drums and everything and the electric guitars blaring, and, and they'd be like, you know what, not for me. I'm going to go to the more traditional service earlier or later. But 
I'm glad it's there because I see this kid that I haven't seen in years coming back to church, and he's in there. I see, I see this young adult who I've never seen, and here they are coming to our church. So you know what? I'm glad it's there. I'm supportive of it, but I'm just going to, you know, go to my own service. But then we had others who absolutely were against us, absolutely judged us. I remember one instance, and I loved, I loved our pastoral staff. I think we had an incredibly godly pastoral staff and an incredibly godly senior pastor, Mike Tucker. This man is one of the most gracious, grace-oriented, loving, caring pastors or people that I've ever, ever met, much less had the privilege to work with and learn from. But he also had a tremendous amount of backbone. And he knew if someone was messing with his kids, he wasn't going to stand for it. He was going to set them straight. (laughs) He had a lot of backbone. So one day, a teenager came in who hadn't been going to church in a very long time. He heard about this contemporary service. He decided, hey, I want to go check this out. Comes in wearing his kind of tattered jeans, a little disheveled. Gets into the lobby, and one of the saints intercepted him as he was about to go into the church. And he started telling him about how he shouldn't be coming to church wearing that. This, this was a place where, you know, a good percentage of people were still kind of wearing the whole suit and tie thing. And uh, in, in hot Texas in the summer. Can you believe that? Yeah. Um, so he started telling the kid, he can't be coming to church wearing that. He shouldn't be, shouldn't be in there. Thankfully, my senior pastor, Mike, overheard that. Walks over, greets the teenager, and he tells him, I'm so glad you're here. We are a come-as-you-are church, and you can come however you are. We're just glad you're here. Come on in. Let's praise God together. To which the saint looked at Mike and said, well, it's either him or me. To which Mike said, well, we hope you'll reconsider, but we're going to miss you. He stood up for that kid. That kid was being judged inappropriately. And Mike stood up for him. And that teenager is now a young adult still in the church to this day. Because Mike did what was right. He saw someone that was being judged and put an end to it. He stopped him. He did what was right. Supporting that boy. There was a, another instance where there was a lady in the lobby and she was going on and on about how what was going on in that room. And I, I was in the room at the time doing music and she was going on and on about how wicked this was and how terrible this was and it's Satan's music and all this and that. So Mike's trying to talk to her, trying to tell her, you know, hey, we're, we're, we're doing this for young adults. We have young adults coming back and you know, youth coming back to God because of what's going on in there. It's, it's style. It's not a moral issue. Notes on a page don't contain moral value. It's the words that are important, and they, typically, they like this kind of... Anyway, you, you guys know. I'm preaching to choir here. So Mike's trying to talk to her, but then he has to go, and so his wife, Gail, came and talked to her. And I've, I've mentioned Gail here before um, as one of uh, my mentors who died recently. <clears throat> his, his wife, she was an associate pastor there, and she taught me everything I knew about worship leading, and, and much more than that, about caring for people, 
about, about how, to, how to treat people. And so Gail was a huge influence in my life. I've mentioned her before. So she goes up and starts talking to this lady. And Gail, understand, is one of the sweetest, sweetest ladies that ever walked the face of this earth. One of the kindest, most nurturing, generous, incredible, incredible women. Gifted from God, really, in how she interacted with people. And Gail also had a tremendous amount of backbone. And if you messed with her kids, watch out. Watch out. She had backbone. So this lady was going on and on, and Gail's trying to, you know, trying to be calm and trying to, you know, explain to her why, why this exists, why this, you know, devil service actually happens in a church. And so Gail's, Gail's talking to her, and then the lady gets inappropriate. Then the lady gets inappropriate judging us. And she says, well, I know what they're doing in there. Those, those kids are in there just smoking their pot and drinking their alcohol. I know what they're doing in there. Gail stopped her. She said, you hold on. You hold on right there. I know these kids. These are my kids. They are there worshiping God. They are coming back to church because of this service. And you don't know them, and you have no right to judge them. You have no right to judge them. It seems like some Christians can be some of the most judgmental people in the world. You know, but sometimes what's interesting is they'll find a creative way to phrase it so that it doesn't, so that they at least try to seem like they're not being judgmental. They find a creative way to frame their judgmentalism so they, they try to seem like they're actually doing God's will. And you know how? They call it discipline. They call it church discipline. And there's a time and a place for approaching a brother who you feel has wronged you or whatever, you know, following, following Matthew 18's guidance. And th there's a time and a place for having appropriate conversations about discipline, if you will, but not in the frame of judgmentalism. I remember another situation where we had a teenage girl in our congregation, and she was dating a teenage boy from another congregation, another more conservative congregation. And they got pregnant. They got pregnant out of wedlock. And I remember being in that hospital room because despite their choices, we were going to love them. All right? I remember being there with another pastor in their hospital room right after their baby was born and subsequently died after being born brain dead. And so here this young couple is already feeling bad from their mistake and, and then their, their baby is now dead. And then to pour salt on the wound, that boy's church decided they, they were going to hold a church business session to discuss his disfellowshipment to remove him from their church membership because of the sin that he committed. We're going to set this boy straight. We're going to discipline him and remove him from our church membership. Well, when our pastoral staff got word of that, we said, oh, heck no. That's not going to happen on our watch. So we wrote a letter to that boy, an official letter, 
so that there was a document. And we said, let them vote you out. Let them. Fine. Let them vote you out of membership. In the very next moment, you call us, and we will bring you in as a member right here at our church. And we will love you, and we will accept you, and you have been forgiven by God. Come be a part of our fellowship. We decided to take an approach that we didn't judge people. We strove not to judge people. And we're told in the Bible that we are not to judge. But some churches and some members get it wrong. And they take verses out of context like this in Philippians 2.4. They take it out of context. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So they read, but look into the interests of others. And they say, oh, okay, that gives me permission to mind everyone else's business now. Awesome. Rather than reading it in the entire context. The Bible doesn't encourage us to do that, but it does encourage us to look after one another, to help each other when we're struggling with something, but not to judge. Galatians 6.1 tells us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The Bible speaks out harshly against judgment. And sometimes Jesus even used very colorful wording to describe it. We read in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay, so it's pretty straightforward, right? Jesus didn't want us to judge each other. So who did Jesus judge the most? The Pharisees, those who judged others, he judged them the harshest, right? Who did he judge the least? Sinners. Sinners. Jesus judged the least. We find a story of it in John 8, a beautiful story, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Neither can I, neither do I condemn you. This was a woman who had sinned. Jesus did not judge her. The only people who Jesus seemed to judge in that instance were the Pharisees because they were judging her. They were judging others. But for the sinner, for the woman caught in adultery, he brought hope. Because when Jesus speaks to sinful people, he doesn't speak about their sin, but instead about God's forgiveness. Amen? Jesus gave us some in commandments, some things that he told us not to do. But are there some things that he told us to do? What did Jesus ask us to do? Well, we find it very clearly in Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question— They're always trying to test Jesus. They never win. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You know, one thing that I hate is cliches. I don't like cliches. They're so cliche. A few examples, because cliches, they don't make sense a lot of times, and and a lot of times we don't even know where they came from, and so we just use them out of context. For example, when it rains, it pours. We live in Southern California. When it rains, if it rains, it sprinkles. And that's about it. That cliche makes no sense. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Then why is the government spending so much on health care when instead they should be rerouting those funds into apple farm subsidies? There's a solution to our health care right there. Right there. Just put all the money in apple farm. Sorry, babe, you won't be able to be a, a PA anymore. You'll have to go be an apple farmer. That's, that's just the solution to uh, the doctor thing there. Uh, dress to kill. W- what does that look like? What would you wear if you were dressed to kill? Latex gloves? Maybe a, a, a mask of some sort? I'm, I'm not sure what dress to kill looks like. Don't judge a book by its cover. Really? But the cover of a book has some kind of important info, like the title and the author. And yeah, a book cover is kind of important. If you're not first, you're last. Ricky Bobby a famous NASCAR driver you may be familiar with. We say things, but we don't know where they come from. We sometimes assume that some of these cliches that we hear, we sometimes assume that they come from the Bible. Here's one. You may have heard this. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Oh, but Greg, that sounds nice, right? That sounds nice. That's a nice kind of sound bite. 
that's got to be from the Bible. I know I've read that. No, no, it's actually not. The phrase isn't from the Bible. The earliest references to it that we can find are from Augustine of Hippo. And basically, you know, he read through the Bible and, and, then, and then built this phrase thinking, oh, you know what, this, is, this sounds like something God might say. And then Gandhi coined it later, started using it. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, love the sinner. But you know what it does say? It says, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Can, can you imagine if instead of referring to people as neighbors, we referred to them as sinners, and we went outside of our house, and we look over, hey, sinner, hey, good to see you, sinner, how you doing? Would that go over very well? It's a little bit different when you look over and say, hey, neighbor, how you doing? Good to see you, neighbor. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, love the sinner. It says, love your neighbor. There's a difference between sinners and neighbors. If Jesus would have commanded his disciples to view everyone as sinners, then rather than neighbors, that would be a problem because Jesus understood the human tendency to judge others and to focus on their sins. Love the sinner, hate the sin, is fundamentally flawed because we begin the statement in the seat of hypocrisy, already judging someone. I think the phrase would be better written this way. Hate our sins and love our neighbors. Not in spite of their sin, but in spite of my own. In spite of my own sin. Or maybe instead of forming the longer phrase, hate our sins and love our neighbors, we can diminish it down to the one word from that phrase on which the entire kingdom of God rests. Love. Love. You see, because I believe that the antidote to judgmentalism is love. You might find that there in your worship guides if you're filling it out. And if you do, I invite you to just cross out anecdote and write antidote right there. The spelling's on the screen. I misspelled it. I sent it off for hundreds of these worship guides to be printed and then realized that I misspelled that. Don't judge. <laughs> Don't judge me. But the antidote to judgmentalism is love. So why are we so, as Christians, judgmental, judgmental toward others? Why are we so judgmental? Is it because we're trying to discipline them, trying to set them straight? Is it because we're viewing them more as sinners rather than as neighbors? It very well could be either of those or both of those. But I think there might be a third thing going on here. I think there may be a third thing. I believe that another cause of being judgmental is because you judge others because you judge yourself. You have trouble loving others because you have trouble loving yourselves. You doubt your worth. You doubt your value. You know that you're a sinner, and so you even doubt the promise of salvation. 
This is in your worship guide. To overcome being judgmental toward others, we must overcome being judgmental toward ourselves. To accomplish this, we must love ourselves. Now, I'm not talking about being conceited or anything. I'm just talking about loving the person who God has made you to be. Being happy with the person that God has made you. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39, going back to the verse that we looked at earlier. Just verse 39 here. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, there's two parts to that. Love your neighbor. That's part one. Love yourself is another part. You have to love yourself. And it just may make it possible to love others better if you get that part right. The fact of the matter is that you are loved. Even if you don't love yourself, you are loved beyond measure in spite of your sin, in spite of your mistakes. Romans 3, 23 through 24 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's personalize that for a moment. I'm going to put my name there. I want you to put your name there. For I, Greg Batla, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I, Greg, are, am justified by His grace as a gift. It's a gift. It's a free gift. All we have to do is believe. He gives it to us freely. If we can begin to think of those around us as neighbors rather than as sinners, if we can begin to think of ourselves as a people who are loved and forgiven rather than judged, perhaps then we might be able to experience that attitude change that he so desires for us. You know, here's the thing about judgment. Here's the thing about the judgment, if we're talking the big picture here. There is only one, only one, who is qualified to judge. Do you know that? There is only one who is qualified to judge. But you know what I find interesting? Is that he is also our defender. What's up with that? Our judge is also our defense attorney. The one who judges us is also the one who paid the ultimate price so that we could be made free. So we could be released from the chains of sin that bind us. We could be made flawless, be washed as white as snow. Our judge is our lawyer. Kind of sounds like a fixed trial, right? And that's good for you. And that's good for me. And that's good for those neighbors that we've been judging for so long. That's good for those neighbors that we've been marginalizing. Those, those certain groups that we as Christians, those certain communities that we as Christians don't agree with because they don't look, act, or believe the same way we do. We tell them, I love you. I just don't like your sin. What if God said that to us? 
What if God said that to us? He'd never get to forgiveness because he'd be too busy counting up all of our sins, but he forgives them and throws them away and tells us they don't define you anymore. Neither let the sins of others define you. Your sins don't define you because I got rid of them. As far as the east is from the west, I got rid of them when you asked. Don't let the sins of someone else pull you down and define you because you're judging them. It's all about love, church. It's all about love. Love for God, love for others, love for your neighbors, love for yourself. Love without qualification. Love radically, love inclusively. And perhaps, just perhaps then, the kingdom of God can be expressed in a way that changes everything. Let's pray together. Father God, you are our gracious judge and defender. You are the one who has asked us, rather than judge those around us, to love them, to pour out your love into their lives. God, we just ask that we will be a people who respond to that call, that we will be a people who here in our church, outside of these doors, in our homes, in our relationships, our friendships, our families, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with the community around us, God, may we be a people as Christians known as the people who love, not as the people who judge. God, take that judgmental attitude away from us. May, may we, will you forgive us from ever having that? And may we hand that over to you. And instead, God, teach us, teach us, Lord, how to show your love to others. When we feel like we need to judge someone, God, may that thought, may that approach be replaced with approaching people with your grace and your love, so that we as Christians will be known as a people who love you, who love others, and who love well. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.